Hello and welcome to Workhorse, the podcast about Royal Australian Air Force C-130 Hercules aircraft. Today we're talking about aeromedical evacuation in the 1965-75 to era. I'm your host, Bill Karolakis. Some of you know me as K-9. I served over 30 years in the Canadian and Australian Air Forces, primarily in air mobility roles. In this historically informative podcast series, I cover the entire history of Australian C-130s, including a look at how Australian history was shaped by Australia's Hercules aircraft. This podcast series is generally chronological, and it's based upon an extensive history book I wrote about Australian Air Force C-130s titled Air Mobility Workhorse, which should be published in 2024. So let's get into it. The Hercules was specifically designed to be configured to carry ill or injured people including on stretchers, and to provide for the needs of patients in flight. This role is called Aeromedical Evacuation, or AME for short. We're going to spend a bit of time looking at some AME history, the theory behind AMEs, how C-130s were and weren't suited to AMEs, and finally a few examples of AMEs in the 65-75 to era. The aeromedical role is fundamental to most militaries, and it's defined as transport of ill or injured personnel under medical supervision to appropriate medical treatment facilities. The RAF's aeromedical evacuation routes originated with the formation of one air ambulance unit at Laverton, Victoria during the Second World War. This unit, with its own dedicated aeromedical evacuation aircraft, the four-engine de Havilland DH-86 Express, and then Bristol Bombays, and with their medical staff, supported the British 8th Army in North Africa and Italy, evacuating over 8,200 patients until late 1943. But even during World War II, having dedicated AME aircraft was not an efficient use of aircraft because it was not an everyday requirement. From late 1944, number 1 Medical Air Evacuation Transports Unit and the similar aeromedical evacuation units that followed in their footsteps provided the medical expertise while the RAF's Air Mobility Aircraft, or Allied Aircraft, conducted the transport on an as-required basis. Until the C-130 came along, most Air Forces didn't have a long-range aircraft capable of carrying large numbers of patients from rudimentary airfields, particularly as stretcher patients. Other Air Mobility Aircrafts could conduct aeromedical evacuations, but experiments in carrying wounded in Dakotas and 707s determined that they were inferior to the C-130. The Hercules was pressurized, could carry up to 74 stretcher patients, and was capable of long-range flights. Thus, C-130s were the ideal aircraft for Australia's aeromedical evacuation requirements in the 1960s. Aside from its obvious range and speed benefits, The Herc was a good choice for the AME rule because it had features that suited patient requirements. C-130s came with an 8-foot-high cabin, removable internal vertical supports called stanchions, specifically designed with clasps to hold stretchers in place. In a full aeromedical evacuation stretcher configuration, 74 stretchers could be erected. Many AME teams welcomed the Herc over the Dakota or Caribou because there was much more room to walk around and access patients, whether seated or on stretchers. In addition to the large patient capacity, the stanchion and seating system could be easily adjusted. In as little as one to two hours, a C-130 could be reconfigured to suit any combination of passenger seats, cargo pallets, and litters, thereby giving planners the ability to change load requirements even just shortly before departure. 
In addition to its reconfigurable interior, the C-130's cargo compartment features enabled temperature and pressure control, which were essential for some patients. Cold temperatures could exacerbate injuries and discomfort for burn patients, while other patients required sea-level cabin pressure to prevent further complications, such as in the case of decompression sickness patients. Having said that, the C-130A's temperature control was rudimentary, which I'll come back to shortly. The C-130A had a rudimentary hot water dispenser, while the C-130E's and H's had a galley and sufficient storage to provide passengers with chilled or cooked meals and fluids, regardless of the fact that drinks and meals were usually prepared by a loadmaster, who may or may not have had any culinary skills. Although, some loadmasters did indeed have them. In terms of planning how to get from one airport to another, AME flights were similar to air logistics support flights, but there were a few additional considerations. For example, some aeromedical evacuations occurred in chaotic conditions, and C-130 crews required a backup plan in case the mission was delayed while awaiting patients. This was more apt to occur during emergencies where the triage process could not be completed prior to flight. This very situation arose in the aftermath of the Bali-Indonesia bombings in 2002, which I'll cover in another episode. There were many hours between that bombing and the arrival of the first RAF AME aircraft, but the triage process was not properly completed, and this delayed departures from Bali. Aircrew also needed to ensure the medical equipment required for use on AME missions was transported and operated safely. This equipment might have been as simple as handheld devices, or something containing dangerous goods, or maybe items needing power from the aircraft. On occasion, the medical staff arrived in the back of the aircraft with unapproved items. And this happened more often than you would think, thereby requiring a technical consideration that determined if the equipment was safe to operate and carry in an aircraft. For example, an unapproved electronic component might have interfered with aircraft navigation systems, or some of the medical compounds, for example, oxygen cylinders, may not have been compatible with the other cargo in the aircraft or suitable for high cabin altitudes. As clear as the need for 240-volt power was to operate normal Australian electrical equipment, it wasn't until after the Bali bombings that C-130s were modified to provide for 240-volt AC outlets to power that normal medical equipment, for example, computers and phone chargers. Prior to this modification, medical equipment had to be specifically designed or modified and tested to take aircraft power, which was 28-volt DC or 400-volt AC. Having sorted out those issues, the aircrew and AME teams then coordinated patient requirements. Prior to the embarkation, an early discussion focused on what would happen in the event of an aircraft emergency, or maybe attack, requiring evacuation of the aircraft while on the ground. With stretcher cases embarked, an evacuation could take quite some time if not planned well. Load configuration also had to account for patient privacy and health concerns. This was managed by arranging appropriate seating, stretcher positions, and cargo locations to ensure medical staff had easy access to all patients and that privacy was considered. In some instances, caskets were carried, and in the case of Vietnam-related aeromedical evacuation flights, caskets and patients were separated by a privacy curtain when they had them available, and we heard Shorty talking about that in a recent episode. Flight arrangements also considered whether patients required any particular conditions, for example, a low cabin altitude, patient sensitivity to turbulence or pressure changes, temperature settings, maximum duration of the flight, etc. Finally, aircrew always needed to understand what the requirements were should a patient take a turn for the worse. For example, 
which alternate destinations along the flight path would be suitable to support the patient's medical requirements. Despite all the great reasons to use a C-130 for AMEs, traveling in a HERC could be uncomfortable for those not accustomed to life in the aircraft, such as the medical staff and patients. As mentioned earlier, the temperature control wasn't uniform, particularly in C-130As, and this was highlighted by RAF nurse Margaret Kurgenvin when she said, and this is a quote, Conditions in the C-130 were such that C-130As were able to fit stretchers five high, but cooling and heating were a problem. Coffee spilt on the floor would freeze, and the soldier on the top stretcher would be shedding clothing because he was too hot, end quote. And although there was a rudimentary toilet for those long flights, another RAF nurse, Elizabeth Lloyd, said, and this is another quote, The absence of proper toileting facilities on the C-130A was a problem, especially for the long medevac flights. Nurses limited fuel intake because their uniform pants didn't allow for a discreet pee behind the somewhat inadequate Hessian curtain halfway up the ramp, end quote. She put that very kindly, I think. Although there were grumblings about conditions on C-130As, it was far superior in comparison to a Dakota. And once it was acquired, C-130s were the obvious choice for most AME missions. Confrontazi gave the ADF and RAF some initial experience in C-130 AME operations from Southeast Asia to Australia. But with the onset of combat ops in Vietnam, there was a marked increase in demand for AME flights. So let's look at AMEs in Vietnam now. In the early phases of operations in Vietnam, AME missions were flown by C-130As in conjunction with the normal courier intra-theater tasking to and from Butterworth. Once tasked for an AME into Vietnam, a typical sortie involved collecting weapons from the armory, loading the AME team at Butterworth, then flying with a full load to Vung Tau, which was about a two and a half hour flight. After unloading and refueling, the crews flew the short trip to Saigon where patients and caskets would be loaded for the return trip to Butterworth. In the first years of the Vietnam conflict, there were periods when medical staff availability for AME flights was very limited, so patients would be held at number 4 RAF Hospital at Butterworth, awaiting sufficient numbers before clearing them for the long flight back to Australia. Due to restrictions on overflying Indonesia, the Butterworth to Australia flights initially involved refueling stops at Cocos and an overnight stop at Pierce prior to delivering patients to Laverton or Richmond. The stop at Cocos came with some risk because of its limited infrastructure. Any delay there meant the medical teams and aircrew had to improvise patient and casket management. One such task in early December 1965 took place on A97-212, which was carrying patients in caskets when it became unserviceable at Cocos. The unserviceability lasted four days, requiring the loadmaster, Sergeant Allen Ace Conway, who later became a warrant officer, to house the patients under tents on the beach. Fortunately, there were only five patients in that situation, and the caskets were stored in a Qantas cool room. As Vietnam-based operations expanded and aeromedical evacuations became more frequent, the process was improved with more regular AME staff on each flight and a more predictable C-130 schedule. Given the sensitivities of carrying deceased personnel with passengers, repatriation tasks became cargo-only missions whenever possible. That policy remained in effect for future conflicts, as many of you would know. AME flights out of Vietnam began to garner interest from the media in Australia. A highly critical article by Alistair Brass 
in the March 1967 Medical Journal of Australia sparked a public debate about the suitability of C-130s for AMEs. The comments from Brass were that stark and that influential that I'll read you a few snippets from the article. And here we go. This is a quote. C-130s are great lumbering whales of planes, overpowered by four turboprop engines, which enable them to take off and land in a short distance. Inside, they are equally whale-like, but lacking in blubber, as there is absolutely no padding or muffling to hide the ribs and organs of the plane, or to keep out the noise, which is fearful. They are designed as strictly functional machines, and no attempt has been made to provide any comfort for passengers. While troops, who sit in four parallel rows on nylon webbing, are expected to put up with the dim lights of a few naked light bulbs, a dustbin for a latrine, and the constant harsh melody of groans, hisses, and loud bangs as some part of the machinery fulfills its natural function, it must be a nightmare of a journey for a sick man. There is no running water in the aircraft, no toilet bowl, and certainly no portable oxygen supply or suction apparatus. Once the tongue-like ramp at the back of the plane has clacked shut, the passenger's only information about the stage of the journey reached comes from his senses of hearing, inertia, and equilibrium. An irregular but gentle shaking superimposed on the steady vibration from the engines means taxiing. A rock-shattering howl, a few millimeters of aluminium away, followed by a jerk at the seatbelt, a sense of rapid acceleration, and a feeling of tumbling towards the back of the plane means takeoff. Landing, signaled by the sound of throttling back of the engines, forward tilting of the hurtling aircraft to give the impression of riding a big dipper blindfolded, and a loud crash as the wheels lock into position directly under one's feet is the worst. Even among veteran soldiers, all conversation dries up for the last few minutes before touchdown. Faces tighten and hands reach up to grasp the webbing. The gyrations of a high, searching finger of sunshine from a porthole weaving figures of eight in the funky atmosphere are the only gauge of the plane's angle of banking as it turns into the runway. The sudden bump and shriek of tires, when it comes, is followed by the outbreak of a rash of smiles and sighs as the engines thunder in reverse pitch. No one loves a Hercules. End quote. What a story he told. Those of us who flew on Hercules, of course, think of all of that very fondly, don't we? To answer the criticism from this article, most aeromedical evacuations out of Vietnam were then assigned to C-130Es, and the RAF introduced passenger comfort improvements on the C-130E. By the end of 1968, there was provision for a palletized toilet unit, acoustic blankets were installed on the walls to dampen the noise, a dedicated galley provided for more cooking options, and work was underway to improve the sound system so music could be played during the flight home. Although unable to address all of Brass's criticisms, with these small creature comfort improvements, the C-130Es continued as the main AME platform with more than 3,000 patients flown out on Hercules AME flights during the Vietnam conflict. Let's turn our eye now to domestic AMEs. Due to the remoteness of many Australian airfields, including Australia's island territories, civilians in need of urgent medical attention had few options for transport to a hospital. So C-130s were occasionally called upon for civilian AME duties, particularly in the years before the Royal Flying Doctor Service became widely available. 
And after the shift in defense strategy around 1972, C-130s began to do a lot of domestic and regional AME missions. I'm going to highlight just one that captured the nation's attention. On the 1st of June, 1966, 36 Squadron was tasked to pick up a young girl whose spine and left leg were fractured by the falling limb of a tree on Nauru. The mission timings and routing were predicated on where and when fuel would be available. Nauru had limited fuel, thus the aircraft needed to arrive with sufficient fuel reserves to then fly direct to Brisbane. This required a refuel close to Nauru. Haniara was determined to be the best option. The plan hinged on getting to Honiara at first light for a refuel because Honiara didn't have runway lights in 1966. To make these timings, the aircraft departed Richmond at 10 p.m. and also stopped at Townsville for fuel. Knowing the task was going to be epically long, two crews were put on the mission. A 97-206 departed with Flight Lieutenant Brian Warsap as the captain and co-captain Peter Blair Hickman. The crews alternated legs on the way to Townsville, Honiara, and then Nauru. Warsap flew the arrival into Nauru. The crew circled the island to ensure the grass runway was clear and there weren't any tall-masted ships on short final. Landing at 12.30 p.m. on the 2nd of June, their C-130A was the first aircraft to visit Nauru in months, and it was certainly one of the largest aircraft that had ever been there. While the aircraft was being refueled by hand pump, From drums, Nurse Pam Bell, one of the AME members, organized for the girls' arrival. At the same time, Nauru's administrator, Brigadier King, took the rest of the crew on a sightseeing tour along the island's 12 miles of road. Once the preparations were complete and the sightseeing was over, at 5 p.m., the girl, Nadine, was brought aboard. She was accompanied by her father and another nurse who acted as an interpreter. Nadine was secured in a special cot along with her doll, and off they went on their 2100 nautical mile journey to Brisbane. Eight hours later, they landed in Brisbane to find out that hourly news bulletins had been transmitted over radio and television networks throughout Australia, reporting the progress of their mercy mission. Incredibly, instead of going into crew rest, the two crews refueled the aircraft and flew it back to Richmond. Imagine doing that in today's world. The WHS zealots would have a field day with that. In the 28 hours that elapsed since its departure, A97-206 and its crew had been in the air 20 hours and traveled over 5,200 nautical miles. Epic, indeed. This sort of flexibility and the sheer will to get the job done earned C-130s and their crews a much-deserved reputation as an ideal way to provide emergency support to the civilian community for both search and rescue and AMEs. By the way, Nadine survived her surgery and eventually caught a ship back to Nauru with her father. That's a wrap for today. In the next episode, we'll look at ops into Vietnam and Southeast Asia in the 65 to 75 era. Thanks for listening. And if you know anyone that loves aviation, military history, or was a passenger on a C-130, please tell them about the Workhorse Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>